You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the weekend, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 408 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Let's just say that 407 last week's, the first of 2022, was incredibly popular. And I've received a lot of very positive, very positive feedback uh, from people saying they loved the format. So Emily and I will work on this for a few more occasions uh, during the year. I think it's important. We can have, you know, open it up again to questions from you, the listeners, uh, Columbia-related questions, journalism-related questions, and so on, just like this last time, and uh, and uh, provide you with what kind of feedback we can do. So that's uh, that was really, really positive. And, and actually quite uh, heartwarming. What else is heartwarming, of course, and warms the very cockles of our souls, is that there were three new sign-ups, uh, three new patrons of the Columbia Calling podcast and uh, the news report, the Monday news report from Emily Hart. So thank you again for all of this. It's really just incredible that people are prepared to heart with, uh, part with their hard-earned cash to help us continue and become economically sustainable. So anyway, this week's episode 408, we're talking to author Annika Fajardo, who is in Minnesota, and she's the author of several books, not least the accompanying middle-grade book for the movie Encanto. How cool is that? Encanto, you know, the big movie uh, of uh, about Colombia, uh, the big animated movie about Colombia. So some of you, or a lot of you, will have seen that. Anyhow, that's me signing off for now. Over to Emily with the news, and then back in the third segment with our friend Annika Fajardo telling us a bit about her writing life. Thank you again, and don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of January 17th, 2022. The president of the Cartagena District Council was captured this Friday, January 13th, with one kilogram of cocaine. Police arrested the Liberal Party councillor, along with two other people who were travelling in a van. Inside the vehicle, they found a kilogram of cocaine, a licensed firearm and approximately 8 million pesos in cash. The lawyer for the council president says that she has been framed and that, moments before the inspection, another person got out of the car, who was not then captured. The councillor will, however, be prosecuted, along with her husband and a third person who accompanied them in the vehicle. Scandal has also hit the President's right hand. An advisor to Chief of Staff, Maria Paula Correa, has given his own wife more than 20 contracts after he joined the government. Correa... The right hand of President Iwan Duque said she did not even know that the man was married or that so many contracts had been given to the same person. According to the investigation, Karen Vakido Cuellar had contracts in 24 entities for more than 1 billion pesos, including two with the presidency, 
contracts dishonestly gained for her by her husband, Andres Mauricio Mallorquin, while he was working in the presidential office. He has now been fired. As elections approach and coalitions and candidates start to crystallise, there's good news for Colombian democracy. Voter registration for congressional elections has increased. After this year's deadline, the registration of voters for the legislative elections showed an increase of 35% compared to 2018. Meanwhile, the Employment Mission, a panel of national and international experts created by the government to evaluate the labour market, published their report this week. The mission noted numerous incoherent codes and laws which have effectively resulted in incentives for people not to formalise their labour or employment. The report found that the economy grew 78% since 2007, but barely managed to reduce informal workers in cities by 8.5%, often leaving people without health insurance or social security and unprotected from rights abuses. They also reported huge spending of taxpayers' money on training people who do not then get jobs in what they learned, as well as a woefully inadequate labour justice system which ultimately favours the rich against the poor. Also this week, three people were murdered in Miranda, Cauca. All three were homeless, leading the local community to denounce a wave of social cleansing occurring there. In 2019, the Ombudsman's Office issued a document noting an increase in this form of murder in that municipality, where the Dagoberto Ramos mobile column, Dissidents of the FARC, is in operation and where the ELN, another armed group, also has a presence. This is the sixth massacre of the year so far and the first in Cauca, according to Indipaz. The scale of archaeological treasures found under Colombian road projects has been revealed. The National Infrastructure Agency revealed that more than 2 million archaeological pieces have been found in the 4G road projects, including ceramics, weapons, jewellery, hundreds of human burials and even entire pre-Hispanic villages. So far, there are around 2.5 million findings from preventative archaeology, required by law in such projects, located in 420 archaeological sites along and beneath 21 of the 29 4G roads in the country. Along the Pacifico Tres Road alone, more than 1,000 ceramic pieces and more than 450 human skeletons have been found. There are plans to create a museum to store the finds, to be built within the next three years at the cost of almost $1 billion. Meanwhile, coronavirus cases continue to rise in Colombia amid the arrival of the Omicron variant, with around 30,000 new cases yesterday, up from a daily average of 2,000 this time last month. More than three-quarters of Colombians have now had one dose of vaccine and nearly 60% are fully vaccinated. 8% have now also had booster jabs. The Omicron wave will peak at the end of January, according to the National Institute of Health, though figures suggest that this will bring much lower occupancy in intensive care units and fewer hospitalizations than previous peaks with similar figures. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. This is episode 408 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall, as you well know. My very special guest is Annika Fajardo, a Colombian in Minneapolis, Minnesota, up there in the frozen north. Welcome on the show, Annika. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, you see, you're a writer, you're an author of, of significant note, because the more I research you, the more comes up. It's all very favorable. Uh, your first book, which is what really first drew me to your name, was is called Magical Realism for Non-Believers, A Memoir of Finding Family. This is a topic that is covered by Colombians and others, of course, because of the whole diaspora Perhaps, perhaps you just give us a little bit of a background. I mean, how does a Colombian end up in in Minnesota? I mean, it's not you know Miami or Los Angeles or New York. It's Minnesota. It's you know you're basically on the in in Canada. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more. Yes. Well, so um, I did. I'm I'm not an immigrant, so I think that's part of you know that's how that's why the Minnesota thing. Um, my mom is. Uh, American, long, many generations of Minnesota family. And she ended up in Colombia, in Cali, uh, when she was in college and Uh. fell in love and didn't go back to college and got married. Um, And so I was born in Colombia, in Popayan, and um, the marriage, the international marriage didn't work out. And so I ended up being raised by my mother in Minnesota. And I went back to Colombia for the first time when I was 21 years old, 1995. And that's when I met my father. I mean, he had been around when I was a baby. He would actually been my primary caregivers when I was a baby. Um, but some first time in memory, I met him when I was 21 and sort of began this journey of figuring out this half of me that I didn't know anything about. Um, and that, so that's what the book is about, is that kind of, re- that starting with that return visit and then the journey through some of the um, idiosyncrasies that happen with international uh, marriages and divorces and Colombian families and Colombian men <laughs> um, and kind of figuring out my own family also then I okay. this covers when I also have my own child. Well, of course. Uh, so this is a real... I mean, question of identity. It's not just U.S. or Colombian. It's 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 far-reaching, isn't it? And of course, when you said you have your your child, and it's how, I mean, I'm going through this now. Um, my children are born and raised in Colombia, uh, half Colombian, half English, and since obviously the lockdown and isolation and and pandemic, I've not been able to take them overseas. Yeah, and I'm very aware of this. Uh, I'm very aware of not being able to, t- my, my older one who's six has been to England a few times, but my other one, he, I mean, has he left the country? I don't think so. <laughs> it's two. And, and it's hard, you know, it's hard, but so this, I, <laughs> there was so much in what you just said and, and we'll come to some of it. Uh, 21 is, is an advanced age to sort of re-meet your father after so long and was he still in Popayan or was he in Cali no he was in he's lived his whole life in Popayan so he's Payanes and tell me tell me this the thing of going down age 21 did you feel a sense of 
identity and belonging returning to Popayan or was it just a fresh new place, different culture? I'm a fish out of water. Well, a little bit of both. And I think, so I was in college. I, he and I had no, no communication besides a few letters as I was growing up. My mom didn't, it was not a very good divorce. Mm. So she didn't encourage me to communicate with him. And so I first started writing letters to him when I was 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he invited me, I spoke to him on the phone for the first time on my 21st birthday. And he said, I want to, we want to invite you we want to send you a ticket to come to Colombia. And I had just spent a semester in Spain um, before that. And so I felt pretty, I was pretty fluent in Spanish and I thought I was this international traveler, you know, and I was full of like the 21 year old sort of, I can do anything since one more adventure. What is that? So I don't think I gave it a lot of thought. I just thought, okay, sure. A free trip. Sure. <laughs> um, and and I was expecting something closer to what I had experienced in Spain. So that was one kind of shock because, of course, it has nothing like Spain. Um, and even the Spanish is nothing like Spain Spanish. Uh, but at the same time, I also had this feeling of like, oh, people look like me. I fit in suddenly um, because, yeah, I didn't grow up in Miami. I grew up in this very, very white Norwegian Scandinavian community where there, especially in the eighties, where when I was growing up eighties and nineties, there was very little diversity, yeah. um, especially compared to now even. Uh, so it was just kind of miraculous to me to look everywhere, to see all the brown hair everywhere. Yeah. Like it didn't take much for me to feel like, Oh, I feel like I fit in. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it did, it was also great that my, my dad's wife is fabulous and mm. we all got along. It was, took a little while for me to kind of, acclimate to my father mm. um but the other extended family was easier kind of sure I understand. Blended sure that, of right away. he had another family uh but they as you say they they embraced you uh yes which is amazing amazing not always the case <laughs> right um and did they look at you as being the pretentious one speaking with a Spanish accent as opposed to a, a Colombian one? No, they were so nice. Okay. Everybody was so nice. And, okay. you know, actually, because Popayan, especially back then, was such a small city that a lot of people actually remembered when my mom lived there. Ah. Um, and they remembered her, even people who were not, you know, not related. Um, so I was immediately just like brought into the fold, immediately felt like one of family amazing so so this was 95 and then you brought out the book in 2019 yes so a little a little while between so it was a work in progress for some time as you reflected and of course had your family and so on uh and the quote i most liked uh, that is written up in all of the the blurbs is he loved columbia too much to leave it this is something your mother said about your father Yes. And I think that this was, so you know, the book came out in 2019. I started writing it in, two, in 2009 um, and I had a lot of trouble getting it published. And in those intervening years, I actually went back to Columbia and brought my, brought my daughter. She was six the first time we came. And that kind of gave me a new ending to the book. And I think that's why it finally found a home. But, um, and, but recently 
uh, my father and his wife actually visited here in Minnesota um, this past October. We kind of got this little window between Delta and Omicron that they could travel. Uh, And so I think that in a way now I've realized that quote um, is a simple, is a kind of an oversimplification. I think, I think I understand a little bit differently now, but he is a homebody. He does love Popayán. He doesn't like, he doesn't even like traveling, you know, within Colombia, much less, <laughs> um, you know, he's in his eighties now and, uh, but he's never really liked leaving home. He's always wanted to be in his familiar space. Um, and so I think it was, it was partly that and partly um, he was done moving around. He spent his um, teenage and college in upstate New York and he lived in mm-hmm. Canada for a while. So he spent time away from Columbia. Uh, but I think there was a poll. There's always been a poll there that mm. he, he maybe doesn't always want to admit, but he, it, it is there. But he came <laughs> up. I mean, you know, as you said, he's in his 80s and he came up in October, which is, you know, it's, it's not an easy month either uh, up there. And that's, that's <laughs> a big deal. That's a big deal. So I, I think it, you bringing your daughter down age six obviously gave you the opportunity to see Colombia through her eyes. And therefore, you finished the book on that. T- tell us a little bit about uh, writing this book. And I mean, you must have had, I would say, internal conflict. Am I writing this as a Colombian? Am I writing this as an American? Uh, or is am I just going to blend it into magical realism like you, like you title the book? Um, it's got to have been difficult. I think, you know, I think that we all, I mean, you write for yourself, right? And so you don't really have this external view. I am writing this as, you know, as a representation of anything. You know, this was this was very much just very, very much my unique story. And, it, you know, readers have told me, you know, oh, especially actually international adoptees have, have connected to this story. Um, so it's almost closer to that than it is to the diaspora story because it's got this weird kind of disconnect between these two countries. Um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the reason I was exploring this was to identify with my Colombian side mm-hmm. um, and to understand it better, which I think has been really helpful, especially for my daughter who identifies strongly as being part Colombian. She's quarter Colombian, <laughs> but she sees that as being a, a a, you know, a strong part of her identity. She has been there um, several times now, and then now with her grandpa coming to visit her, um, she really has more of a connection to Colombia even than I did growing up, um, because all my connection was once I was an adult. Um, so it's been an interesting journey to kind of see that, and I've been able to let go. You know, a lot of I think anyone who is mixed has a lot of feeling of not being enough of either side, mm. and I think that. Um, seeing her interaction with kind of that identity and, and of course having a book out um, has helped me kind of just embrace like, well, I'm just going to be what I am going to be. And when you're half and half, you can't be more or less of either, right? You're equal. <laughs> you're equal on both of those. I, I like that, that very much that, that she has really, you know, taken on that identity in the Colombian side. Uh, that's strong. Um, I, I'm also curious here is in your first opening part is 
you you mentioned something about learning about Colombian men. I, th- I guess uh, your mother talking about Colombian men and and so on. I think we need to explore that a little more because I'm always you know I, I do know a fair amount of uh, immigrants to Colombia uh, <laughs> and they are uh, they are usually bowled over by Colombian men. There's a certain degree of romanticism, and of course the men can dance. Uh, they're very good. Uh, gift uh, gift of the gab uh, nice uh, chatty uh, and so on but then perhaps beyond that there's uh, there's some challenges i don't know uh, let's what did your mum have to say <laughs> um well you know instead of telling you what my mother said i'll tell you what my father said okay. which when i first went there when i was 21 i was dating my now husband oh. and my who's white and from minnesota and my father said told me his advice to me when I was 21 was never marry a Latino. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, (laughs) he thought, he thought I was going to do much better staying with my, with my now husband. Um, And so I think that, you know, there was some, uh, some drama in their relationship, my mom and dad. And I think that he recognized that and, um, and so he he kind of laughs about that. I don't know that he believes, I don't think he remembers it. I don't think that he would own that exactly now, but but I remember it very clearly because when you're 21 and getting that advice from your father who you've just met, it's, it, it sticks with you. It's, it's, you're an impressionable <laughs> age as well. I mean, <laughs> very impressionable, very impressionable. The comment you made there about, uh, uh, you know, identifying more with sort of Colombian children adopted to the US or elsewhere is, is very interesting because it's something that comes up a lot. I mentioned it indeed last week because I know of, a, of quite a few um, people adopted overseas from Colombia. Uh, and again, this question of identity and, and sort of half-half and, 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 and so on, it's because uh, you're not, as you say, you're not an immigrant. You, there's a different story here. Have uh, adoptees reached out to you to, to talk about this, this question? Because I think it's a, a fascinating thing to explore. Yeah, I had... Um... I've had a couple adoptees actually from Asia who have told oh, me really? in Korea who have said, this is really, I really identified with your experience. I had a young woman who was actually, she wasn't adopted, but her family is from Somalia oh. and she was a young college age woman. And she told me this, she just loved, she loved this book. And she said she identified with all of it is, you know, she doesn't speak Spanish. She has no connection to Colombia, but that kind of pull between two places, I think, mm. um, was what she was identifying with and kind of that searching of, you know, where do I belong and which side, which side should I identify, which, which side should I be, what should I call myself? But it, I mean, it's clearly, you this is coming into your literature and, and, you know, Annika has got a number of books out and another book coming out this year. And aside from what I else, I mean, you've done other, other stories as well, but the, the crux seems to be identity and it seems i mean there's so much on colombia now i mean obviously i think colombia is a, a wealth for stories uh but you're looking at uh what if a fish is the book you wrote in 2020 and it's kind of figuring out what it is to be colombian i think is the, is the and then you've got another book coming out in may of this year 2022 saying meet me halfway and these last two books are both middle grade but it's again sisters I think 
in Colombia. Uh-huh. Colombia. So, I mean, you have adopted this. I mean, this is <laughs> so, uh, seriously. But most exciting and most, uh, for me, uh, most sort of uh, the actual time is you wrote the accompanying book for the movie Encanto. Yes. That's, that's, an in- that's incredible. It was amazing. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell us. I mean, because Encanto is obviously being marketed and now as the, the the greatest sort of sort of uh, publicity for Colombia here it's it's you know heralded as a, as turning the page on on various things trying to block out things like and let's say narcos and other things encounter this again charming uh, uh, um, you know comic strip that it is uh, overseas friends of mine have written to say that they're taking their kids to see it they have nothing to do with colombia but they're taking their children to see it and so on my family's seen it i haven't that's my uh, my disclosure here uh, but you got to so as as you were writing it, they were making the film. Yes. How does that work? Uh, well, so I actually it 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 happened because of what if a fish um, the editor at Disney um, found me through that book because it's about a, a half Colombian half Minnesota boy who goes to Colombia, um, and so she wanted a, an author to write the middle grade novel for Encanto. And so I wrote it last spring and the script was actually in, uh, was still being written while I was writing the book. So they would send me the script. And so I would write the book. The, the, the novel is written from the points of the, from alternating points of view of the three sisters mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are in the movie. And so I would write and then they would, I would send it in and they would tell me, oh no, no, that's not what happens now. <laughs> so then I would write it you know, read the new script and then change the plot a little bit, or they would, they were actually changing the personalities of these sisters as I was writing it. So it was very exciting (laughs) to kind of try to keep up with these things. Exciting Um, and demanding. It was very demanding and it was, I've never worked with a script before. And so I did, I had to kind of learn what a movie script looks like and how it works and what all these different meanings uh, that are in, you know, kind of some slang and things that they use in script writing, which I was not familiar with. Mm. Uh, and I saw a very, very early kind of sketch take of the movie. Um, like it was literally in sketch form, much of it, um, or partially animated um, to kind of, and that kind of gave me a sense of, you know, kind of visually what was happening in in the film. Uh, so when I saw it for the first time, I saw it in the movie theater for the first time. I thought, oh, that's what they did with that part. Oh, that's what they were imagining um, as they were writing that scene. Um, and there are a few changes, I think, that happened between when I finished the book and the movie came out. So it's not a complete exact version. No, but it's it's, it's kind of incredible to be, now be totally associated to that. You know, you look at your Amazon profile or you look at your, uh, you know, your website, there it is. And Canto, I'm like, you know, the first thing I think is she wrote in Canto, but then I, you know, <laughs> like, yes. but um, I mean, it is, it's, it's a huge deal. It's Disney and, and, and so on. And it's Columbia. And, and in fact, my friend's hotel in, in, Kindio or Armenia? Uh, Armenia is in Kindio. No, it's, uh, is is the hotel uh, that inspired it, Hacienda Bambusa. Have you have you visited any of the places that that inspired uh, parts of this? No, not that uh, I know of. I I don't think so. Oh no, and 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 this, you know this Encanto. Uh, you were obviously sworn to secrecy while you were working on it, so nothing oh, could leak out. 
Yes, the the level of secrecy with Disney was that was that was an experience in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do they threaten to break your legs or something? I, well, you know, maybe that's in the small print. But the best, my favorite was that when I was screening the this first version, they actually, you know, have a certain there's a window of time and you could watch it, and you were instructed to close all the curtains in the room. You were watching it. Wow, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> The curtain. I mean, so you might have had. It might have been like professional spies. At right. <laughs> right. Right. It was fascinating. It is. That was my favorite. Just kind of the 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 lore of working for Disney was my favorite. Oh, of course. Part of and I bet your your daughter was just thrilled that you were working on this. Yes, and she's been getting a lot. She's in high school now, but she's still getting a lot of street cred right now. And she tells her um, her classmates and her teachers that I worked on this novel. Uh, well, now, now that the uh, now that uh, let's say that this uh, you know security clauses are hopefully lifted, can you tell us if anything really changed? I mean, what what was taken out that could have been in there? I mean, is, are we going to get a special editor's edition later on? With the parts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the biggest thing I think is that as they were writing it, they were having some sensitivity readers reading it, and so they did make some adjustments on some of the characters, especially the darker skinned characters to make sure that they were positive um, representations. So I think that those things are for the better. Okay, so sensitivity readers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So obviously people, you know, obviously, I I mean... I would say experts, academics, and people with knowledge of, of you know all of the I guess race, culture, gender, and so on, saying this you can't do this, you should do this, and, da, da, da. and so. And was there anything that came up while you were writing it, going, I don't think that's Colombian, or I don't think this should go in? Is there something? Was there anything there for you? Well, for me, you know, having you know, my, obviously, my memoir is called uses the for magical realism and. The story, to me, from my reading of magical realism and sort of what that means, the movie is magic, not magical realism. And I, and so that is definitely something that stuck out to me to kind of wrap my head around, actually, as, as a writer of this book, mm. to remember we are actually talking about straight up magic. I mean, the family has magical powers Mm -hmm. and that's not what you see in traditional kind of magical realism, um, literary device, right? It's not, you know, you shoot things out of your fingertips or anything. So that was one of the things that surprised me that they had gone that way. But I mean, that's sort of very Disney, right? Do straight up magic. That's sort of the Disney way. And it has to appeal to a younger generation who might not be so aware of the suggestion of magical realism, let's say. Right. Things, but the, the image behind the image or reading between the lines. If you've got the magic, we know it's magic. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and, and so, you're, you're, as you say, now, where, I mean, you've got this book coming out, but where do you go from here? Because, I mean, Disney is uh, huge. Has, have, I mean, you, I know that you teach at Augsburg University and the, the Loft Literary Center, you know, up where you are in Minnesota. Have there been just a ridiculous flood of signups for your classes now that everybody knows you worked on Encanto? No, I'm like the, the the most successful, least known <laughs> person. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, I primarily teach nonfiction, so memoir writing. Um, so that, so Encanto does not change that. Um, 
<laughs> I'm hoping that this means that more projects come to me, especially projects from um, Disney. I wouldn't yeah. mind. Um, and and I'm hoping, of course, that that this connection will, you know, make people more interested in reading both What If a Fish, which is a really quiet, and I mean, it's very, it's not Encanto, it's very quiet kind of introspective story of identity. Um, but I hope people will, I hope my people pick up, meet me halfway, mm. um, and just maybe be more interested in my work. Well, I'm sure they will. And, and Disney, if you're listening, I mean, that, there we are. That was a shout out from Annika there. Yes. She, wants, she wants more work from you, Disney. Bring me work. <laughs> um, I'm now fascinated is that you are teaching nonfiction. I'm writing nonfiction, but I can't get my book into any editorial house. What should I do? <laughs> Here we go. There's a question for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um, well, the first advice I was giving people is to write for yourself because you might never get it published. <laughs> Um, I struggled to get my book published for many years. Um, and I think part of it is that when we write about our own stories, we think they're ready before they're actually ready. Mm-hmm. Because we, in our minds, have have thought about it and have processed these things for a long time. But they ha- that doesn't always show up on the page for a while. And, um, and having perspective on your life experience um, you, you need some distance. And I think that's really frustrating um, for a lot of people. It was certainly frustrating for me mm. that you have to live your life before you can really um, analyze it or write about it creatively. Uh, so that is, that's the, that's the reality. Um, publishing a personal essay and memoir is just really hard because uh, everyone has an interesting story and not everyone can tell it in an interesting way. That's a, and the yeah. trends are crazy. That's the the trends. Are, is, you know, this last year, two books came out on the river, on the Magdalena River. You know, or last year and a half. So you got Wade, Wade Davis, who was on the show uh, in his book Magdalena, and then Jordan Salama, uh, who's every day the river changes about the Magdalena River. And my book, my manuscript deals with my my time in Montpos, which is now up to 15, 16 years. And and what flows past Montpos? Well, the Magdalena River. So I, you know, it's a crowded field. <laughs> I'm gonna to have to wait another 10 years. <laughs> well, either or that means you're ripe for it. You know, I mean, you know, sometimes there needs to be just, you know, three might be the magic number. Maybe this is your chance. You're very, very positive, and I appreciate that immensely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, but that's very helpful to the, you know, I, I actually did do quite a large step back um, during uh, when I should have been writing probably during the pandemic and isolation. But in truth, I was living my life a bit and I finished up a doctorate and writing on that and so on. So I think that was stepping back, and it's actually given me a greater sense of what perhaps needs to go down on the page again. Uh, so I've been, been re, you know, re-immersing myself slowly into it. But, you know, uh, I'm a parent. Uh, business is only just picking up from my hotels. You've got to make ends meet too. <laughs> that's exactly. The, that's the truth. And so, so tell me about Meet Me Halfway. But this is the book that's coming out in May. This is very exciting. And as you said, you're hoping that, Encanto will draw more people to meet me halfway. It's a story of sisters in in Colombia. Uh, they're in the U.S. Okay, um, sorry, yes. In California, uh, what if a fish had uh, half brothers who yeah. were ten years apart? 
Mimi Halfway has half sisters who are the same age. Mm. Um, and both of both of those stories influenced by my own experience um, and kind of processing my own experience. Uh, and I mean, that, the idea of what if is my favorite um, kind of jumping off point. Um, and so spoiler for my memoir is that I have a half brother who is my almost my same age. And um, and so that's kind of where this idea came from is what if we had met when we were young? Mm. And so in this and meet me halfway, these two sisters meet when they're um, 12 years old in middle school and they look alike. They look identical, um, almost identical. And so they realize right away pretty soon that they're um, half siblings and their father is they've never met their father, but he is Colombian. He's a Colombian um, anthropologist who spent all his time in the field. And so he's totally gone. And then they discover that he's actually teaching uh, nearby. And so they set off to find him. So it's a sort of a 12 year old version of a road trip adventure where they go and they do not get along at all. Uh, they're very different. Um, so they kind of have to navigate getting along with each other and they have this shared goal of trying to find their father um, and to meet him for the first time. This all sounds very much taken from uh, you, you know, your life. Indeed, is your dad an anthropologist? Can I just ask? No, my my my, um, my dad's wife is an anthropologist. Oh, there, there you go. The, the osmosis between one parent and and then his yes. wife. Uh, and um, did you get? And she she did a lot of help. She really helped me find. I used some um, mythology from the Arapu people. Yeah. Um, and so she helped me find some of these different mythologies that, you know, I can't find here in English because mm. I didn't really even know where to start to do some research on Colombian mythology. The, the story is, has, has some themes of mythology, both kind of Greek mythology and then mm. Latin American mythology. Well, and, and, and your half brother, who's almost your age, was there, were there, was there friction then? Is this where it's coming from? Um, no, we, no, we, uh, yeah, no. Okay, perfect. And it's, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, I think, you know, I, we all, I mean, families, aren't they? They are kind of crazy. Uh, and we just yes. have to, we, we have to just kind of take them as they are. And, and, but Colombian families, uh, how big is your family in the US? And how big is your family in Colombia? I mean, because Colombian families tend to be quite large. <laughs> My my family is quite small, actually. I am an only child. Um, I grew up just with my mom mm. and my grandparents here in Minnesota. And then um, I have a half brother, and but I didn't know him growing up mm. at all. I didn't meet mm. him until I was an adult. And uh, my dad didn't have any other children, so okay. he just has his two American kids. <laughs> okay, but then then you went down and met the extended family. It's but I have some cousins, and then my my dad's wife comes from a humongous family. Mm. So, you know, I, can, I never can keep track. I think there's 10. I don't know. <laughs> well, see, <laughs> there's a lot of them. On one side, so on my wife's maternal side, there are 12 uncles and aunts. I mean, uh, and, and I tell you a secret is that I'm allowed special dispensation to not go to family events. Because uh, it's just too many. I go to one, and then I've ticked the box for the rest of the season. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just too it's yeah. too much sometimes you know that's a lot that is a lot and then yeah. because you know it's just i don't sometimes i just don't remember some of the names because i remember the, the key ones you know but then after that right. when we start extending into second cousins and third i'm really not sure <laughs> right <laughs> and i probably met them you know a dozen or more times and so you should know their names by now but it's oh, yeah yeah, yeah. It's when I start using the royal we in, in Spanish and things like that, when I start referring to everyone at once. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, uh, your work is, I mean, it's kind of incredible so since 2019 to have so many books out and to have worked in Encanto. Um, are we going to take a break anytime soon? Are you going to have to like pause and, and say, this is now, now for my next thing, I'm going to take some time. I am taking some time. I am hopefully, hopefully this doesn't jink it, jinx this. I am knock on wood. Um, I am working on an adult novel, which mm. is really my dream to write an adult novel. Uh, and it will be the same exact, I will write about identity and Columbia and America, American identity for my whole life. I think it's like, there's endless things to say and endless things for me to think about. Um, of course. So I am working through that right now and I'm, I'm, I'm excited, but it's also weird to be at the beginning of a project after being at the end of the projects for the last few years. True. I mean, it seems like you must've been writing them, you know, concurrently. (laughs) It's like, that's a good one for another one. And this, so you've got sort of three files open at once. What um, I've got a, I've got a question for you because one of my, my dreams that I'm, that I'm sort of putting into action now is to open uh, and start my own publishing company here from Colombia, but uh, dedicated to books in English uh, about this area of Latin America. There is a market for it. I mean, and you're showing me this by talking about, you know, these Colombian, I mean, and I would say typically Colombian stories, but that that appeal, and you mentioned it too, uh, to, to, to others. Uh, as you said, your your friends from the from Asia and so on have said, "Listen, just, I think there's a market for it. I don't think it's going to be, unfortunately, groundbreaking or earth shattering, but I think there is a market for it." And so this has given me a little bit more impetus. I have three scripts, three documents have been sent in, so that's positive. Wow! Uh, I've got them. I've got one. One is really long. I mean, this is this is you know, it's divided up. You can see it in another thing, into double. Page, oh my goodness! So this is this is easily more than four hundred pages. I've got to on this one to go through. <laughs> um, That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. It will. I already know that we're going to have to sort of pare it down. Uh, but it, it's exciting. What what it, is your um, experience with editors? Do you, do you have a when you send it in to your editor, do you have a friendly relationship or you, do you end up, you know, cracking heads is this cannot be cut out and this cannot be changed? Tell us a little bit. Well, so my editors have been fabulous. The, the, for the memoir, um, I actually had two manuscripts that I had been working through I, based on various advice. I had a, a sort of essay, um, nonlinear manuscript and then I had a chronological manuscript that someone had advised me to write and neither of them were getting published and when I finally met my editor I told him about these two and he liked them both but we we went in actually I mean this is back in the day when you could meet in person we met in person (laughs) and we looked at them we were just 
And we talked about how to put them together. And so I wove them together. I literally spent a weekend at a cabin and just cut apart the manuscripts and literally taped and stapled them back together. Um, and so, and the editor kind of helped me work through some of the, you know, how do we deal with this kind of time issue? How do we deal with this theme? How do we keep these pieces together? Um, you know, where should it start? Where should it end? Uh, so he was, he was instrumental in being able to put it together in a book that would work for other readers. <laughs> um, and then my editor for the, for the middle grade novels, um, is she's actually Puerto Rican and she had just visited her grandmother in the mountains in Puerto Rico when she first got my manuscript um, where the boy goes to Cartagena and meets, meets this abuela. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so she was really accepting of like, how do we push this feeling of being in Colombia? How do we push this, you know, the sensory and, you know, let's really dig into that. And so that's been really helpful. Um, you know, the last round of editing that happens is copy editing. Uh, so that's like grammar and punctuation and just like the nitpicky stuff. Yeah. And those copy editors, which I've worked as a copy editor, I'm trained as a copy editor. So mm -hmm. I know I know the, the how close you have to follow rules, um, but they tend to be so rule-based that they will suggest that things shouldn't be the way that you've written them. And, um, you know, I'll give you an example, which this, my most recent manuscript, I said something about the scent of green and the mm -hmm. copy editor said, well, green doesn't have a scent. You can't say that. <laughs> um, and so that's the kind of thing that my editor, then I can say, oh, no, we, I'm going to leave that because this is my writing. Mm -hmm. um, so my editor, you know, of course has got my back on that as we, as I push back on that kind of uh, more nitpicky thing. I, I can imagine the scent of green. I can I, imagine yes. it. And I, as a description, I can imagine it. Definitely. Of course, I've got an idea of, you know, freshly cut grass or something. It's a, it's yeah. a, I can imagine it or, you know, or kind of a jungle smell or something. I mean, uh, uh, that's pretty exciting. And so I'm going to say, well, not only congratulations on all the previous publications, but congratulations most on Encanto because it's, I mean, obviously this is the Colombian flag to the world right now and until the, right. next, until the next one, you know, it's it. but for the time being, it's, it's really, you know, got something that's very positive. Uh, uh, I think we should not try and over intellectualize Encanto, but some people do. Uh, yes. And if you go onto Twitter, that's where the hatred lives. <laughs> and, it is. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, and that's where the, and people end up over intellectualizing things. Just take it for what it is, as you said, magic. Uh, magic. magic. And, and also I wish you the best of luck for Meet Me Halfway out May 2022. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. So everyone, check out Annika's website. That's Annika Fajardo, A-N-I-K-A, Fajardo, as the um, presidential hopeful surname. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, she's on Instagram as well, Annika Writer. As you can find her everywhere. You can find her everywhere. And so if you have young children, you know, between the ages of sort of eight and 12, that's middle grade, there are these books. You've got Encanto, you've got What If a Fish, and you've got Meet Me Halfway. Support writers, buy the books. Thank you so much for your time, Annika. 
Thank you. You're most welcome. So we've been talking to Anahaka Fajardo, who's up there in Minnesota. Uh, next week, we'll be back on the Columbia Calling podcast. I have uh, a person who's been working alongside forensic investigators in Colombia and, of course, doing studies in that field and how it uh, uh, pertains to the HEP, that's the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz and the Truth Commission and so on. So always keeping it different, jumping around between subjects, but always Colombia related. Of course, remember to support us on Patreon patreon.com forward slash columbia calling or just give us a one-off donation at ko-fi.com that's ko-fi and you can find columbia calling thank you again to annika fajardo thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back again next week bye-bye Blah.